second reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5. I will read to you verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, it is by your Holy Spirit that those words we just read were inspired. We pray this morning that by that same Holy Spirit we might be illuminated, that our hearts might be prepared to receive your word so that we might be more and more transformed into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is often called the love chapter, and it's often read at weddings. You've heard it a hundred times, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul isn't talking about romantic love and he's not talking about marital love. In fact, he's talking about church love. That peculiar kind of love that followers of Jesus Christ have for one another. And in the last verse of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul writes, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Of these three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, faith and love get a lot of attention. And it seems like hope is overlooked and neglected. And that might be because in common English parlance, hope is a weak and wishy-washy word. Like when you're driving down to the shore for your vacation and you ask your wife, did you turn off the stove? And she says, I hope so. Or when you're driving to the airport to fly to Europe and your wife asks you, did you pack your passport? And you say, I hope so. Or when you're in your bungee jumping harness, ready to dive 200 feet head first off of a bridge and you ask the teenager who strapped you in, is this thing really going to hold me? And he says, I hope so. It doesn't inspire much confidence. Hope is lovely. But with that kind of wishy-washy, hopey uncertainty, it's no wonder that hope takes a back seat to faith and love. But that understanding of hope as a weak and wishy-washy word is a mistake. At least it's a mistake in the context of the Bible. Because the word hope in Scripture is far more robust and reliable than it is in common parlance. R.C. Sproul, 
argues, quote, The only difference between hope and faith is that faith looks to what has already taken place. And we put our trust in it. Hope is faith looking forward. And we put our trust in it. Sproul might be on to something there. Faith trusts and stands on what we have heard. On the report of the apostles. On things that took place in the past. But hope looks forward to the future. To the fulfillment of God's promises made to us long ago. Certainly there is a close alliance between faith and hope. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.24. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? Read that in conjunction with the very familiar Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And we see that hope and faith are twins. One looking backwards and one looking forwards. The Greek word that Paul uses for hope in Romans chapter 5 is elpis. In the New Testament that word is often used in a technical way to indicate confident expectation in eternal salvation. Already in the first century church, hope had become a kind of shorthand for all of the benefits that will ultimately come to us by being united to Christ. I don't know if they have them anymore, but when I was growing up in Missouri, girls often had something called a hope chest. Do they still have hope chests? It was made out of cedar. It was as wide as your bed and it stood at the foot of your bed. And girls would piece by piece collect items of clothing and household linens that they would need when they were married. And they'd put them in their hope chest. A hope chest was a poor person's dowry. Often filled with handmade items, treasured and useful things. Not for today but linking today in a sacred way to a future hope. Biblical hope isn't a feeling. It is the sum total of what we know will be ours because we are united to Christ. It is everything which is in our hope chest. That's how the Apostle Paul uses the word when he encourages us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter uses this hope in the same way to mean all of the benefits in Christ. We hear him say, woo, and that passage went right off of my script. So let me read you another passage from Paul. Paul, this is, this is a, uh, an account of Paul showing up in Acts uh, 23, 6, where we read, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, in the court, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When Paul says hope of the resurrection of the dead, he doesn't mean that there's any uncertainty about the future resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees were absolutely clear that the resurrection was coming, but the hope was in the future. When he says hope of the resurrection, Paul is talking about the sum total 
of all the blessings that are wrapped up in that resurrection. He's talking about everything that is in our hope chest of the Christian faith. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the word elpis is used for trust. It's sometimes used for that in which we confide. Or it also means the refuge to which we escape. Psalm 71, 5, we hear David say, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. There's no question about whether or not there is a God. There's no ambiguity about who this God is. Here, Scripture uses the word hope to indicate trust or confidence in the one who is perfectly trustworthy and rock solid. Psalm 91, verses 9 and 10, uses this same word. And the NIV translates it as refuge. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, my hope, and make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. And finally, in our call to worship this morning, we again hear this same word translated both as trust and as hope. It's the same word. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over you. My hope is in you all day long. In our reading from Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about hope as something that doesn't begin a spiritual process, but which is the result of a spiritual process. Hope comes at the end, not at the beginning. He says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. We're beginning to live in a time which is looking more and more like the world the Apostle Paul lived in. A world in which Christians are persecuted, a world in which speaking out for Christ is penalized. Pastor Andrew Brunson, one of our missionaries, who faithfully and openly served the Izmir Resurrection Church in Turkey for 23 years, almost half of his life, has been sitting in prison on trumped-up charges since October 7th, 2016. Pastor Andrew loves Turkey. He's devoted to his those people. His children have been born there. His family lives there. But he's in jail, like the Apostle Paul before him, for no other reason than that he has proclaimed Christ and Christ crucified and the Islamic government under which he lives wants to stamp that message out. Two weeks ago, Pastor Bill Devlin, a Presbyterian missionary from Huntington Valley, cornered me out in the parking lot, right out those doors. He was in the United States for just a short time. He went to Turkey to be with Brother Andrew during his first court hearing in a kangaroo court. And the week before, he had been in Afghanistan working on behalf of Christians, Christians in the most dangerous possible situations. Last week, he was in Cuba. You might have heard that there was... A plane crash in Cuba, and one of the people who died on that plane was a missionary who had adopted ten children from Cuba, ten impoverished children. And Bill went to Cuba 
to figure out what's going to happen to those children who've now lost their adoptive father. Anyway, Bill collars me out in the parking lot because he wants people to go with him to attend the next court hearing for Andrew in Turkey. He wants the Turkish government to see that Christians stand with one another. And he, Pastor Bill Devlin, has offered himself to the Turkish government in exchange for Andrew Brunson. He's offered to serve out Brunson's prison term so that Andrew can go home to be with his family. Paul was writing to Christians living under enormous pressure. Pressure that we can't imagine here in our comfortable lives in Huntington Valley. Paul says that not only does he rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We talked about that last week. If you missed that, get the CD. But he also rejoices in this pressure, in this suffering. Paul isn't talking about the ordinary aches and pains in life. He's talking about the deliberate opposition and persecution of a world which is hostile to God and hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul rejoices in those sufferings. He rejoices in the pressure that he's under. How many times have I heard of people saying that they've lost their faith because of the suffering that's shown up in their lives? Oh, how could a loving God allow this to happen to me? Maybe you've asked that question yourself. It's in the, in the midst of suffering that you thought you couldn't bear. In the midst of circumstances that seem so grossly unfair. How could a loving God let this happen to me? Andrew Brunson, who has devoted his entire adult life to serving out and living the gospel with the people in Izmir, Turkey, could certainly ask that question. I've been serving you faithfully, God, and this is what I get. I spend the rest of my life in prison, separated from my family. I might be executed. Is that the reward for my faithful service? Last week, or last fall... While he was in prison, I think it must have been on the anniversary of his incarceration, Andrew wrote a new hymn. Its title is, You Are Worthy. Let me read you some of the lyrics. You are worthy, worthy of my all. My tears and pain I lift up as an offering. Teach me to share in the fellowship of your suffering. Lamb of God, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy, worthy of my all, but my heart faints, drowned in sorrow, overwhelmed. Make me like you, cross-bearer, persevering, faithful to the end, to stand the trial and receive the crown of life. You are worthy, worthy of my all. This is my declaration in my darkest hour. Jesus The faithful one who loves me, always good and true, you made me yours. You are worthy of my all. The Apostle Paul, who is writing to the church in Rome while he himself is sitting in a prison, 
A prison term that's not going to come to an end until he is executed. He says to the church, I rejoice in my suffering. Is he crazy? Paul is not crazy. He's not irrational. He's not a masochist. Paul, in fact, knows a good thing when he sees it. And Paul explains the logic of his rejoicing and suffering in this way. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. Step one. And endurance produces character. Step two. And character produces hope. Step three. And hope does not put us to shame. Paul rejoices in his suffering Not because he likes to suffer. He rejoices in his suffering because of what the suffering will produce. First it produces endurance. Paul spoke many times of the Christian life as a race to be run with endurance. Josh Bruce and my daughter Rosie recently ran the Pittsburgh Marathon. 26.2 miles. There's a satisfaction, I can imagine, not that I would know, and a glory in finishing a marathon. No matter what your finishing time is, even if you're the last person across the finish line, just finishing is a victory. But no one runs a marathon without endurance, and endurance doesn't happen by itself. It requires a kind of disciplined suffering. Many long hours spent in training, getting up early for long runs, even when you don't feel like it. But the reward is worth it. And so Paul doesn't like suffering for the sake of suffering. He rejoices in his suffering because it's producing in him this endurance that he needs. And second, endurance produces character. Character is that steady, reliable habit of doing the right thing even when it's inconvenient, even when it's not expedient, even when it's not fun. I think we Christians don't talk enough about character, about slowly, steadily building up goodly and godly habits. Habits like Sabbath keeping and tithing and daily prayer, and regular Bible study, and intentional generosity and hospitality, and patience with people who try our patience, and kindness when we are feeling beset ourselves, and gentleness when we would rather be demanding, and peace when we're agitated, and self-control when we would really rather cut loose. Followers of Christ are called disciples. And a disciple is one who undergoes discipline. Discipline which produces endurance and character. And finally, thirdly, character, Paul tells us, gives rise to hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint. And neither does it put us to shame. I've said it many times from this pulpit because it's true that a preacher is always preaching to himself. So I've got to tell you that I've got a long way to go before I enjoy the kind of hope that Paul is talking about. 
Now, there are some of you in this room who do have it. And I could name names if you wanted me to. There are some of you in this room who have that hope that doesn't disappoint, that won't put you to shame. And I admire you for it, and I've been blessed by it, because you are the ones that I've had to lean on in the face of headwinds of opposition. You are the ones who just keep pressing forward with endurance and character, endurance and character that you've earned the hard way through suffering, because you keep pressing forward because you keep your eye on the prize that Jesus has set before you. You're filled with joyful hope. Even in the middle of trouble and perplexity. During those times when I am inclined to be discouraged and frustrated and hopeless. Some of you have a number of years on me. And so I'm hopeful that God will keep working on me so that I can be more like you. But some of you are younger than me. And God has sent you some real suffering in your lives, some trials, some real pressure. And through those you have acquired a hope that does not disappoint. Your lives and your testimonies are worth more than all of my preaching. And I thank God for you and for your example and for your partnership in this ministry. Those of you who have this hope, I encourage you to continue to share your testimony and your experience here in this very special church so that all of us may grow together, and grow up in our faith, becoming more and more like Christ with each passing year. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you have been good to us in so many ways, and you have sustained us through so many things. It is your track record which causes us to have faith and hope in you. To have faith in you and to have hope in your promises. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us opportunities to develop endurance, to develop character so that we might Have a hope that doesn't disappoint. I pray that for our own blessing and I pray it for your glory because you alone are worthy. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.